Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. Serial killers Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, and Jeffrey Dahmer are often the first names that spring to mind. Many people assume serial killers are primarily an American phenomena that came about in the latter part of the 20th century. But such assumptions are far from the truth. Serial killers have been around for a very long time and can be found in every corner of the globe. Some of these predators have been caught and brought to justice, whereas others have been never been found, let alone identified. Edited by acclaimed author and anthologist Mitzi Cerrito, The Best New True Crime Stories, Serial Killers, reveals all new accounts of true crime serial killers from the contemporary to the historic. The international list of contributors includes award-winning crime writers, true crime podcasters, journalists, and experts in the dark crimes field, such as Martin Edwards, Lee Meller, Danuta Cott, Craig Pittman, Richard O. Jones, Marcy Rendon, Mark Brown, Vicki Hendricks, and Mark Fryers. Mitzi Cerrito's story included is about Vlado Teneski, a particularly brutal serial killer from Macedonia, the Kvechko monster. The Man in Black and the Silver Screen, The Life and Crimes of Peter Moore by Mark Fryers. Uh, Mark Fryers will be joining us. The Man in Black physically and sexually assaulted countless men in a reign of terror that lasted over 20 years his crimes culminating in a crime spree in the winter of 1995, which ended in the lives of four men. He ran and owned and ran several cinemas in the area and acted like a film star at his trial, dressing all in black and claiming that it wasn't he who committed the murders, but a phantom named Jason, after the homicidal killer in the film Friday the 13th. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Best New True Crime Stories, Serial Killers, with my special guest, journalist and author and anthologist, Mitzi Cerrito, and later, Mark Fryers. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for agreeing to this interview, Mitzi Cerrito. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me on the show. And I hope I didn't (laughs) totally butcher your last name (laughs) a couple times. (laughs) <laughs> you know, I'm sort of used to that, and, and, and here I go, and I write this story from Macedonia with some names that are going to be, I'll probably just say victim one, victim two, victim three. <laughs> Make things easier. Uh, yes. Pronounce your last name for us, please. Sure. Soretto. Soretto. There we go. Thank you very much, Missy Soretto. Let's talk about the origins of this collection. Uh Serial Killers, the best new true crime story, Serial Killers. How did it come about? Tell us a little bit about the origins of this collection. 
Well, um, you know, as you know, I've, in, I've edited a lot of anthologies in the past in different genres, and uh, I'm going to say, honestly, this is my first venture into true crime. And, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to do something that stood out a bit differently from a lot of other things. Um, I know that this is probably a slight departure from your usual format with an author coming on to speak about an, a book that is on one case. Uh, in this in this book, we've got 16 different cases and 16 different authors. So uh, it's a, it's really wide ranging. Uh, I mean, we've got serial killers from all corners of the globe, uh, different time frames, and of course, different ways of telling the stories. Uh, you know, each author has approached it in their own way. Uh, we actually even have first person accounts in the book where uh, the the writer has actually had some face to face contact with the serial killers. Uh, sometimes in a professional capacity, uh, sometimes in a completely accidental way. So uh, it's it's pretty distinctive about, you know, I mean, each piece is quite distinctive. And, and as I said, you've got that voice of that individual writer telling the story in their own way that really no one else can say it the same way. Right. You start off the book with a, an introduction um, and but you've one of the, the first story is the quiet man in the overall struggle to be heard by Stephen Wade, and this is about Dennis Nielsen. Yes. Uh, tell us about the uh, the accidental serial killer Craig Pittman, uh, and give us a list of the other authors that appear in here and the stories that they cover and the cases that they feature. Sure. Uh, well, as as we mentioned, uh, The Quiet Man and the Overall Struggle to be Heard is by uh, British author Stephen Wade, uh, and it's about Dennis Nilsson. However, it's not necessarily focusing entirely on Dennis's crimes, on Nilsson's crimes. Uh, I mean, you know, a lot has been written about Dennis Nilsson, but what makes this story uh, rather different from the rest is uh, the author Stephen Wade was a writer in prisons in the United Kingdom and Dennis Nilsson was in his writing class. So he, he actually had a completely unusual way of, of encountering this serial killer and a lot of the piece discusses how uh, uh, Nilsson was, was quite, you know, intellectually there. I mean, he was a very intelligent man. Um, there was definitely something going on behind his eyes. And uh, uh, the author does go on and discusses how, you know, how he felt he teaching him in the class. But also there's a lot to be discussed in the story about how Nilsson had written his autobiography and how he wanted this to be published. And it goes on about how it was even smuggled out by his attorney, which isn't something you're supposed to do. Um, how Nilsson sure. wanted this fought in the, in the European Court of uh, Appeals, you know, as far as the, his human rights were being violated by not having this published. So it's, it's a totally different approach to the Nilsson story that most people might be familiar with. Um, the next piece that you'd mentioned, uh, the accident, the accidental serial killer by Craig Pittman. Uh, Craig is a journalist in Florida, and he covered uh, the Jimmy Randall trial. And uh, Jimmy Randall seemed to have a bit of a thing for strangling women during sex, uh, often leaving them dead. Uh, so he he actually started this in Massachusetts uh, with his with his then wife, and then he moved to Florida around the time of uh, I believe it was Katrina, and uh, prostitutes were turning up dead on the golf course in that Clearwater area, 
And uh, so Pittman covered the uh, the murder trial, and Pittman uh, discusses how uh, he goes into a lot of the uh, information about how things were investigated and how uh, the crimes were eventually tied to Jimmy Randall. But the odd thing was he was convicted on the murders and he was sentenced to death, but there were ex- the, the extenuating circumstances were such that the reason for the title of the story, The Accidental Serial Killer, they claimed the killings were accidental. So sure. he ended up uh, not getting the death penalty, and he's just in prison as we speak. Mm-hmm. Now, a particularly uh, interesting and story that I had not read at all, along with some of these other ones, but this uh, particularly interesting case of the Rat Man by Joe Turner, 1989, in a place not accustomed for murder, especially this kind of murder in Tokyo. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this story. Yeah, this is a pretty shocking one. This is probably, um, I mean, all serial killer cases are shocking, and they're all horrible. But but this one is particularly particularly horrible. Uh, It was Tsutomo Miyazaki who uh, was in the Tokyo area. He came from a very good family. He was a young young man. Um, and he was essentially dubbed the little girl murderer at first, which pretty much tells you who his demographic was. Um, he was uh, a pedophile. He was a necrophiliac. He was um, a cannibal. And uh, there's a lot more to it than simply discussing his crimes. Um, Miyazaki was very isolated. Uh, He had a uh, disfigurement. His hands and wrists were disfigured. So he grew up as an object of being taunted, and uh, it made him more and more isolated. It made him more and more withdrawn. And he pretty much became obsessed with comic books and manga and all of those things, um, which progressed into violent horror films and even extreme pornography. So as the years passed and, uh, you know, he got out of school and he was working in the photography field, uh, he just got worse. And so he began targeting young girls, and I'm talking like young, like five years old young, and uh, would pick them up in his car like on a hot day, like, oh, it's hot, you know, let me give you a lift. And, you know, these little girls didn't think anything of it. Uh, And unfortunately, they paid the price and uh, were usually raped, murdered, or sometimes murdered and then raped, uh, dismembered, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this went on for a few victims. And Miyazaki would even torment the families by sending letters. Uh, Then he progressed to sending boxes with, uh, you know, remains and things like that. And it's, it's a particularly heinous case and particularly shopping, shocking for Japan. And, you know, this is just not something that is known in that, in that culture. And, you know, clearly Miyazaki had mental health issues, but again, that was also overlooked because it's just not something that, you know, it would bring shame on the family and the parents really didn't want to deal with it. So instead of getting him help, they just tried to, you know, spoil him with more, you know, things that were not what he needed. But, yeah, sure. he, he slayed four little girls in this case. Yeah. 
you also include um, a friend of the program, Lee Meller from Canada, and he has a, a story called You Should Nay Kill, Glasgow's Bible bashing yes. serial killer. And, and we're talking, serial strangler, pardon me, and we're talking about Ian Brady. You have an interview with a serial killer with an author named James Young. This is particularly fascinating and um, incredible interview from Brazil in 2018. Tell us a little bit about Interview with a Serial Killer. Well, that's another uh, first-person account. Uh, James Young was a journalist living in, in that part of Brazil at the time. And uh, how it all came about for him was uh, a tabloid newspaper back in the U.K. had asked him uh, to do an interview with this particular serial killer, whose name I shall attempt to pronounce. I believe it is Diego Enrique Gomez de Rocha. Hopefully I got that correct. Sounds good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I sometimes come through. Uh, so uh, he managed to get a uh, get an interview uh, at the police station where Gomez was being held. Um, now, th there's a lot of context behind this story. Uh, Brazil has a horrendous murder rate. I mean, it's 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 pretty shocking. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I've heard the stories about you know organs going missing for people drugged and left on the beach, but I mean. You know, this is pretty extreme. Um, I mean, there are actually, I mean, Young actually says there are more than 50,000 murders in Brazil every year. And wow. more than, uh, and, and at the end of 18, 2018, more than 80,000 registered missing persons cases. And we're talking about a 10%, uh, less than 10% of murders are solved. So, you wow. know, murder is sort of an everyday thing in Brazil. But um, sure. so, I mean, you know, in this case, maybe no one would blink an eye, but the crimes were just getting to be bizarre. Uh, Gomez had uh, Gomez had a uh, his M.O., his his uh, his modus operandi was uh, a black motorbike, which is a very common thing in Brazil. Everyone's zooming around on their black motorbikes. But what he would do is he would um, be on his motorbike and he would pull up next to somebody. And sometimes he would claim he was like shout robbery, but sometimes he didn't. And he would shoot these people to death. Um, now, initially, it was uh, some prostitutes and homeless, and that didn't get much notice. But then it started to be an, a, a lot of women and girls. Uh, people were just going about their daily business, like a, a schoolgirl walking, walking to school, uh, somebody waiting for a, uh, a bus, uh, somebody walking to the supermarket or the bakery, uh, a, a housewife going to collect her kids from school, uh, somebody at a snack bar, these kinds of killings that you can't just say, well, they're prostitutes or they're homeless. So the case started to get attention after that. So um, once Gomez was finally caught, and that was um, due to some uh, CCTV footage and witness descriptions, and he was arrested, Young managed to step in and get this and get this rather bizarre interview with the killer. And it's it's really uh, an interesting case because it's like uh, everybody is posturing around, you know, the police are posturing around. He compares uh, uh, Gomez's lawyer with Saul Goodman. <laughs> so, you know, it's all their, their 15 minutes of fame kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about uh, he confessed to 39 murders. Yeah, I mean, number. he confessed. 
yeah, I mean, he confessed to to a number of murders, but you know, it's it's probably far more than that. <laughs> I mean, wow. I, I believe Gomez is uh, was the most prolific serial killer in Brazil, at least to date. Mm-hmm. So we have to say to date because of you know with their with their murder rate there who knows someone will probably surpass them at some point. And 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 by trial he was guilty for twenty nine. So that's an accomplishment, I guess. Yeah, I believe it's cases. something like a, a all of his all of his convictions resulted in a he's pretty much got a tally of six hundred years as his mm-hmm. sentence. So it's not likely he's going to be coming out. Not not alive anyway. Yeah, certainly. You have a story that's personal that you've written yourself, and this is the again, if I if you can if I butcher this, the Kichevo <laughs> monster. And yes. so, tell us about this and your personal connection to this story, and tell us about this serial killer. Well, this is a, this is a particularly. Uh, interesting and odd case um just to give a little perspective uh it the uh the killings were in i should say first it macedonia but macedonia is now technically the republic of north macedonia as of the beginning of 2019 however when this case happened it was simply known as macedonia uh we're talking from uh the early 2000s so i'll just refer to it as refer to it as Macedonia. Um, For listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the Balkans, uh, they might be more familiar with the fact that Macedonia used to be part of uh, former communist Yugoslavia. So with the breakup of Yugoslavia and, of course, of the fall of communism in that part of the world, all these smaller countries came about. Uh, Now, Macedonia is a pretty impoverished country. It's not really... uh, done well since communism has left. So, you know, you've got uh, a huge poverty level. You've got a lot of government corruption, things like that. So the case in this, in, in this particular case uh, involves uh, the murders of three women and the possible murder of a fourth, although this has never been, she's never been found. Uh, these women all have shared similar similar uh, descriptions. Uh, They were all women, older women, maybe mid-50s, 60s, up to 80s. They were sort of motherly types, uh, not particularly educated women. And they all worked as cleaning women, which is unusual, that you would have all these women in the same profession. So uh, at the time, there was a journalist in Kichevo named Vlado Tanesky. And uh, he was a, a journalist since his youth, and uh, he started to cover the cases. Uh, he had actually been working steadily for a newspaper, and he'd been let go. So uh, that was around uh, 2004, I believe. And so he needed to kind of remake himself, and he went into becoming a freelancer. And he just sort of uh, got involved in these cases and decided to cover them. And he became sort of the expert, the man on the ground in Kichevo covering these killings. So uh, we have uh, one victim in 2005, another 2007, and one in 2008. Um, They all were, it was the same sort of thing. The women were found nude. They were found stuffed inside a nylon bag. Uh, Their legs were tied with telephone cable. They were beaten and raped sexually violated with foreign objects. 
and strangled with the same telephone cord that had bound their legs. So here, this is clearly, the vic- these victims all sound like they are what's one specific killer. So Tineski actually is the one who put this together and said, I think we have a serial killer. So he was the one everybody was listening to. He was the one that was writing about all of the all of these killings. He was giving a lot of details. Um, everybody was pretty much glued to the newspaper. Um, but then things got a little strange because he was actually writing about these uh, killings and having information that hadn't been publicly released, such as the telephone cord. This was not public knowledge. So people right. were wondering, well, you know, does he have an inside source? Does he actually know the serial killer? <laughs> so as this case was being investigated and they started to interview people and look for suspects, Tineski went right to the top of the list as the potential suspect. So he ended up being arrested and uh, they had DNA evidence that did match with one of the victims uh, from the rape. And so, you know, it looked pretty, pretty uh you know, wrapped, like it was wrapped up, and he obviously did it. So uh, following his arrest, he was uh, sent to another prison to be held for 30 days. And uh, oddly, within three days, he was dead. Uh, he was found drowned in a bucket of water, a potential suicide, and that is how it was ruled, a suicide. So pretty much it's assumed, yes, he was the killer, Having said that, in my particular piece, I play devil's advocate because there's a lot of things here that don't quite match up. And, you know, we'll never know if he's actually the one who did these killings because he's dead and he he can't tell us. But there's just a lot of questions surrounding this case. Uh, The suicide's awfully convenient. Um, Other issues, uh, you know, he left a note that he didn't do it. Um, There was evidence that... uh, was sort of compromised. Uh, there was evidence that wasn't forthcoming. Uh, just too many things that that are uh, odd. That just you know, I mean, despite the DNA match, there's other things that contradict that. It's interesting when you say that because in the story, he is uh, the top newspaper guy providing the story to other newspapers as the trial goes on and the investigation pardon me, the investigation goes on, there are a couple people that are accused of of the murders and convicted. And he is on the top of his game, but he is also very, very critical of the police. So when you say that people were looking at these things that seemed like he had an inside source, that, you write, was the thing that made police look at him a little differently, didn't it? Exactly, exactly. I mean, in a way, it was as if he had a, I I mentioned in the story that it was like he had a neon sign above him or or an arrow pointing to him as as the guilty party. Um, And yeah, it just uh, either, either, you know, there's an arrogance there or hubris that he was, uh, he was just so already convinced that, well, hey, I'm, I'm, I am at the top of my game. I'm the one everybody's coming to. And he got careless or perhaps I, I don't know. Um, but yes, as you mentioned earlier, there were uh, one of the killings, a couple of uh, men were convicted for one of the killings. Uh, there was um, a killing of an elderly man and also an elderly, uh, the, an elderly man. And this also was, um, they were 
the modus operandi for that was sort of similar, you know, beaten, uh, raped with foreign objects. It was pretty frenzied, pretty brutal. So they were convicted for one of the uh, murders that Tanesky is um, believed to have committed. But the odd thing was there was actually DNA evidence that would have absolved them, but that in, that was suppressed. Why was it suppressed? <laughs> you know, and then, of course, obviously, these guys were in prison when two more killings were killed. So clearly they weren't the ones responsible for the women. And they had actually admitted to killing an elderly man, and they denied the killing of the elderly woman. But then they said later the police had beaten the confessions out of them. And, you know, you have to look at the framework here in Macedonia. There there was corruption. Uh, you know, there. who knows? You know, government corruption, things that were maybe covered over or planted or there's just no way of knowing but there's enough evidence to to make you wonder to make you question just how accurate anything was that was as far as convicting Tineski or convicting him after his death rather since he never went to trial certainly I mean there was also um, uh, one of the victims was found with a jersey near her and it had blood on it and it wasn't her blood but it wasn't Tanesky's blood either. So, okay, whose blood was on this on this jersey? Th- too many questions. Certainly. You have other stories in this book, one called the Connecting the Dots with uh, Marcy Rendon. Uh, the First of Criminals, Martin Edwards, which is uh, chronicles Dr. Harold Shipman and his uh, incredible tally of of murder. The Beast of B.C., maybe, maybe people aren't so familiar with who this is, is Clifford Olson, uh, his reign of horror from 80 to 81, child killer. Australia's brownout murders, Anthony Ferguson, and uh, we, we were and Jolly Jane and the Deacon, Richard O. Jones, and the Bluebeard of Rome, Deidre Pirro. And we're going to talk to Mark Friars in a few moments about the man in black and the silver screen. Tell us about some of these other killers, famous serial killers that are covered, and not so famous serial killers that are covered in the stories that I just mentioned. Sure. Well, uh, you referenced uh, Connecting the Dots by Marcy Rendon. Um, This is a first-person account, um, and, you know, it's particularly relevant right now. Uh, Marcy is a Native American writer uh, from the United States uh, and Minneapolis area, and uh, she writes about uh, a serial killer that was targeting Native women back in 86 and 87, Um, Now, you know, this is not something that is unusual. I mean, there has been serial killers targeting Native women for quite some time, and as well as in Canada, as you know. Uh, And uh, she was living in Minneapolis at the time in this particular area. So she lived through it. Uh, She knew other women who were also terrorized by what was going on. Uh, Marcy literally saw the bodies, uh, you know, when they were dumped, for instance, down on the railroad tracks. And uh, her piece uh, is very personal, and she goes and speaks to some of the women from that time period and and really gives a a sense of what it was like living in this one little neighborhood, the Phillips neighborhood, which is where a lot of Native uh, Americans were 
transplanted. They were, it was called the reservation in the city. It wasn't technically a reservation, but they removed them from the reservation, stuck them in this one neighborhood, almost, I guess, a ghettoized area for them. And uh, the odd thing about this particular case is there was somebody who was believed to have been the killer, a, a man named Billy Glaze, who was a white transient, who just hung out with the natives. Uh, he just, uh, I suppose, was... was uh, just interested in uh, being with Native Americans. And he's the person that uh, was believed to, he was convicted of three murders. And yet there's odd things in this case. The DNA didn't match anything found at the scene. And yet it, it matched a Minnesota Native man who was a convicted rapist. And yet Glaze, who has died, he had uh, lung cancer, so he died in prison. He has never had his name cleared. And no one else has ever been charged with these killings. And it's wow. from Marcy's story, it sounds as if Glaze did not do these killings. So who did? Is a good question. Yes, absolutely. Uh, other piece you mentioned, uh, The Beast of B.C. by Mike Brown. Uh, Mike is actually the um, host of the Dark Poutine podcast, which is a popular uh, okay. true crime podcast. <laughs> you probably know it. Um, he covers Clifford Olson, who, uh, again, this is another, you know, when it's something, especially when someone's targeting children, it's it seems to really kind of hit, hit in the gut even more so. Uh, Olson targeted children, he targeted uh, teens uh, and young adults, and this was all over the greater Vancouver area. I mean, he literally just combed the whole greater Vancouver area, the whole lower mainland, targeting kids, one after the other. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, in this story, you're, it's as if we're being hammered over and over and over because you just get one after the other one after the other and it's just how long it's how long this guy kept going on doing this um what's particularly interesting in this case is after he was finally caught um laws actually were changed in canada i mean olson was sitting in prison collecting his pension uh he, he was going yeah. to collect some other kind of money for being low income and and you know this is just insane that the government yeah. was was literally handing this guy money who, and after he left such a wake of destruction you know yes absolutely yeah, uh, and then uh, the brownout murders. Uh, we can just mention that briefly. Uh, Anthony Ferguson. This is a this is an interesting piece. This was uh, in World War II uh, in Australia when American servicemen were sent to help out uh, because Britain was so involved in Europe. Uh, Australia needed some help as well, so uh, lots of servicemen from the United States were sent to help out uh, in the Melbourne area. And this story is about the brownouts, which um, it wasn't a total blackout, but it was a brownout. So you had, uh, you know, lights dimmed and all of this. And things went on, you know, a, a lot of the servicemen took advantage of it because, uh, you know, with the ladies, you know, it's wartime and, and people are kind of uh, living on the edge. So uh, this particular uh, serviceman, Private Edward Leonsky, was in Melbourne, and uh, he just started to target women. He he sort of was targeting motherly types, uh, or at least motherly types, women who could perhaps be his mother, you know, maybe women, middle-aged women, and uh, he would strangle them, 
and uh, oddly, he did not actually sexually uh, molest or rape them. But it, the crimes do seem to be sexually motivated. So he went through. Uh, he, you know, he strangled several women, and uh, he had a. He was a. He definitely had some mental problems, uh, and there was a mental illness in the family. But he was also a raging alcoholic, and the more he drank, the crazier he got. And so a lot of these things were happening when he was way out there with his alcohol consumption. Uh, so he left these women, just dumped them after he killed them. And uh, what's interesting about this case is when he was finally caught, and he was caught because he actually told a friend of his back at Camp Pell that he was the killer. Of course, it wasn't taken seriously until later. So when, when he was finally caught, the Australians wanted to try him, but the Americans wanted to try him under military law because that would have allowed them to apply the death penalty. So there was this whole battle between Australia and the United States about, you know, we want we want this guy. We want to send this guy to, you know, we want to try him and prosecute him. Uh, and the Americans ended up holding sway on it. And uh, President Roosevelt was fully behind this. So this is an odd case that we actually have a foreign national tried under the laws of another country in this foreign country. Fascinating. Uh, tell us uh, briefly about Jolly Jane and, and the Deacon by Richard O. Jones. Yes, that's that's an interesting one. Uh, Jolly Jane and the Deacon is one of the uh, more historic pieces in here. Uh, it was uh, Jolly Jane lived in the uh, late 1800s, and uh, she was uh, Jane Topin is her name, and she was a nurse in Massachusetts, and uh, she just seemed to like to kill people. Uh, and so the story chronicles how uh, she just went uh, from one place to the other. Uh, she, she, it was odd because what she liked to do is she, she did it in a ra rather tender way. I mean, she actually would even do it in the hospital. She would uh, get into the hospital bed and, and comfort a patient and caress them and then uh, po poison them. <laughs> so uh, so she did this with people. She would uh, live with people. She would end up starting to kill them off. Um, she had an obsession with uh, an older gentleman who was uh, a vicar and uh, or rather a deacon and uh, she was extremely jealous and would try to get rid of anyone who was sort of whom she considered competition. So uh, she just uh, she just killed one person after the other, almost you know without any thought, you know, just just because she enjoyed killing. Um, and when she was actually uh, arrested and, and tried, she pretty much said she kind of wanted to get her number up to a hundred. It was like a contest for her to see how many wow. people she could kill. Ambitious, yes, fascinating. You, uh, the other story is the Blue Beard of Rome by Deidre Pirro. We have uh, Mark Friars going to join us right now, um, calling in. He's one of the other authors, and he has written *The Men in Black* and *The Silver Screen*, *The Life and Crimes of Peter Moore*. So uh, we'll just get Mark on before we bid you adieu. Um, Missy. Okay. So, 
we'll see if we can connect with Mark Fryers right now. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to the program, Mark Fryers. Hello, Dan. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you very much for joining us to talk about the man in black and the silver screen. Thank you very much, Mitzi Serrato, uh, for this interview and for this fantastic collection, the uh, New True Crime Stories Serial Killers, the best New True Crime Stories Serial Killers. It's been a pleasure, Mitzi, joining us for the program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. Great. Now, Mark, uh, tell us uh, how you became involved in this story before we talk about the outline of, again, the most evil man to ever set foot in Wales, Peter Moore. Tell us how you became involved and tell us about the man in black. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, being a a writer, but also a a film lecturer as well, um, you know, there was a connection between Peter Moore, his life, um, and cinema, um, and particularly, you know, he, he owned cinemas within the North Wales area. Okay, this was at a time when, you know, most of the small regional cinemas had closed down. So, you know, he was something, uh, you know, of, a, of an enigmatic figure because he brought, you know, this, this entertainment back into people's lives. You know, he brought this um, sort of magic and, and, and light, you know, into the area. You know, so you know, in that regard, he had you know a very privileged position uh, in the community. Um, and as I'll go on to explain, you know, his his connection, you know, with film continued, um, you know, in a more sinister um, capacity. You know, when it became clear, you know, what he'd been getting up to, you know, for, for a long time, uh, undetected. Tell us, as you as you write about his in, in very very unusual background, his his upbringing. Yeah, yeah, sure. So he was uh, he was born um, in North Wales. Um, so this again, you know, sort of understanding the area. This this is this is somewhere that tourism, uh, you know, is so important. But then, you know, like so many other places that rely on tourism, uh, you know, when winter months come in, when fall comes in. Um, you know, it's a very sleepy place. You know, it's it's um, it's, it's very right. dark and there's long nights. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of small rural communities. So he grew up uh, in a place called Kimnall Bay, uh, and he had something, you know, of a privileged upbringing because his parents um, owned a local shop, uh, so they could provide for him. You know, they bought him a cine camera, which is another little sort of connection between him and a silver screen. Um, his mother, Edith, uh, didn't have him until she was in her 40s. Okay, so she considered him to be her little miracle. Uh, and so subsequently, there was a very close bond uh, between um, Peter and his mother, um, you know, which some might describe as, as being a mummy's boy. And, you know, and, and that's certainly you know, what contemporary accounts of his upbringing you know, seem to bring up. Uh, by contrast, his father was a very stern man, um, you know, he was a very disciplinarian. He had a very different relationship with his father. Um, you know, I, you know, I think he was he was both alcoholic and probably violent towards uh, the young Peter. Um, and I think you know when it became clear that that Peter was gay, um, his father, you know, being you know old fashioned, certainly wouldn't have approved of this, you know, to say the least. Um, so when his father died, um, you know, he took over the shop. 
um, and then sort of branched out into uh, you know, other businesses, uh, which meant that he was kind of crisscrossing uh, the North Wales region. Uh, he had certain cinemas. Uh, he also used to do deliveries. You know, so he was living this kind of uh, transitory lifestyle. Um, so it meant that you know he was um, he was coming to face to face with people who, who were similarly on the fringes of society who made it a bit vulnerable, um, or you know the, you know living you know in, in the shadows if you like. The thing that we didn't mention too is that his uh, which is somewhat unusual or rare in the days, as you say, is that his parents mm-hmm. bought him a uh, cine camera, which was. Right. rare for the day, and he made little films of himself and his mother. You say peculiar mm. romantic affairs featuring him running towards the camera with flowers declaring, declaring his love for her. So, yeah. quite unusual. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you say, in the first instance, it was unusual, you know, for someone in that community to, to you know, to available, you know, to afford something like that, you know, kind of like, like a frivolous leisure item. Um, but yeah, like what's even more unusual about that is that yes, he used to make little films, little romantic films in which he'd be declaring his love to his mother. You know, so you know, quite unequivocally, you know, there was um, not just a strong bond, but one that, as you say, is probably a little bit unusual. Um, and again, it, it kind of it exacerbated this divide between you know him, you know, his relationship with his mother and his relationship with his father. Um, yeah. You write about some before his parents died, because you write his mother has passed away 19 yeah. months before the murder, so we're getting ahead of ourselves. But uh, mm-hmm. what was some of the behavior that he was characterized by? What was he doing at that time, unbeknownst to his mother, his parents, or anyone? What was he doing before his mother passed away and 19 months Later, the murders began. Yeah. So um, again, it, it was it, it was kind of an, an open secret that he was gay. Um, but not just this. He he would um, indulge in S and M sessions, uh, so, so homosexual S and M sessions. You know, where he was clearly the um, you know the, the the dominating character. Um, so he would have these clandestine sexual encounters. Um, you know, sometimes at his place of business, um, possibly when his mother wasn't in the house. Um, uh, so, you know, these were essentially, con- you know, consenting um, sort of sessions. Although, um, you know, he, he clearly took advantage of that. Um, he was brutal and sadistic in the, in the, in the punishment that he, would, uh, that he would meet out to, to those who, you know, in brackets were part of a consensual session. Um, And this kind of fed his kind of sadistic streak um, and his uh, sort of desire for for, for control and mastery over others um, in in a kind of strange sort of mixture of of, of sex and violence. So he was doing this. um, You know, some people were probably aware. Um, You know, what he took advantage of as well was the fact that, you know, even though some of these uh, encounters were consensual. You know, it, he knew that you know if he went too far, um, you know, people would be reluctant to uh, to go to a, to the to the police or the authorities uh, because right. then you know they they'd be outed. 
Okay, and you know this 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 was quite a conservative community certainly back then anyway. So this you know it, it was kind of it was something you wouldn't want people to know. Um, but alongside this, um, and you know this this came out later. You know he was terrorising people, you know who weren't you know in any way consensual. So he would um, he would go down to a place called Pensam Beach, which is a well-known meeting space for for, for homosexuals. And you know he would he would meet out the same punishment, um, sort of brutalizing people, uh, beating them, um, and then sort of disappear off into the shadows. But, but alongside that as well, he would um, he would target you know essentially heterosexual males. Um, but again, you know he'd wait until a position where they were vulnerable. So usually he would um, sort of lurk around and wait for someone to sort of walk home from the from the pub at night. Um, sort of off their guard, maybe had a few drinks, and he would come up behind and you know and beat them, you know, quite mercilessly, uh, to the point where one of his victims, um, you know, never came out of the the hospice where he was being cared for. He was he was beaten that bad. So you know, for years there, there were there, one that you know there was a kind of uh, an understanding, you know, that there was a, that a sort of SMA community going on, uh, but also that there were these um, unexplained. Uh, beating, sort of indiscriminate, really. Um, and again, this. Um, so, sort of going back a bit, so his father, you know, clearly he had a very strained relationship with, and his father being alcoholic, you know, not being alcoholic, but certainly, you know, had, uh, you know, drank a lot, and it, and he hated this. Uh, so it's speculated that you know one of the reasons why he targeted people walking home from the pub. Uh, you know, was a way of, um, you know, somehow getting back his father or you're playing out the scenario where he tells his father off or gets control and mastery over him. Okay, so this is all going on, you know, for years. Um, but obviously he kept this from his mother. You know, he didn't want her to know. Um, you know, he, he was a, a little miracle. Uh, so anything that, you know, would, would kind of disabuse her of that notion, you know, was obviously, uh, you know, not something he wanted to do. Um, but when she died, um, he said, you know, basically afterwards, he said that, you know, he felt like he was haunted by death, uh, you know, because a number of his uh, pets also died at the time. Um, so this idea of being haunted by death was obviously something that kind of tipped something that was, um, you know, criminal uh, but not homicidal, you know, into the realm of homicide. So in the some 19 months or so, you know, after his mother passed, um, you know, he turned to murder. And this was all within the space of, of about three months, okay, in the, in the fall of, of 95. Um, so he, he killed four men, um, the one of the four, you know, he he only confessed to later, um, and that was off his own back. Um, so he killed a guy called Henry Roberts, uh, who's in the Anglesey area. Um, this is a guy who who lived by himself. Um, he shared a similar interest in sort of Nazi paraphernalia, um, and. You know, he, again, he was someone who was kind of on the fringes of society, you know, rumoured possibly to be gay, but again, you know, people didn't really want to talk about that. Um, so, yeah, so this, again, this is someone who targeted, um, you know, who was, uh, you know, 
you know, there's less chance of maybe them, you know, being missed initially because they led such a solitary lifestyle. Why the name the Man in Black? Besides the obsession okay, with yeah. the Nazi SS, why why the Man in Black? Yeah. So um, so yes, his uniform of choice when he was indulging in the, in the S and M sessions uh, was kind of black leather. Um, in the style of a, of a kind of an SS guard or a Nazi guard, um, you know, that obviously gave him the uh, the feeling of power, uh, and also, you know, it kind of links back to the idea of, of uh, you know having complete mastery over another human life. Um, you know, in a, in a less uh, sinister way, perhaps he he was noted for wearing black clothes simply, you know, uh, around the town, his businesses at the cinemas. You know, he would very much wear, you know, a black trousers and a black shirt, um, probably knowing that, you know, he would possibly stand out a bit. You know, it's another way of him getting attention, um, you know, because he was nothing. It's not, uh, you know, attention craving, uh, sort of narcissistic. So the, the man in black was obviously something that, um, you know, had less sinister overtones. And, you know, when, when it became clear what he'd, uh, he'd been indulging in, um, you know, this, this was obviously something... Uh, you know, a, a serial killer label, if you like. When you talk about these victims, you talk about Henry Roberts in uh, yeah. September 1995. Uh, again, they shared this Nazi paraphernalia love. We're talking about um, he was stabbed 27 times and his buttocks, buttocks were slashed. And, uh, yeah. and that there was, they discovered he had suffered with a final fatal blow that was prolonged evidence mm. of torture. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, it's been suggested that this is another way of him, um, you know, gaining not only power, but also, you know, sexual gratification over having complete control, having a complete mastery. And, um, you know, the, the, the slashing of the buttocks, uh, you know, it, it seems like it was a final humiliation um, in, in the kind you know, by, by pulling someone's trousers down and basically desecrating the corpse in that manner. It wasn't enough to, uh, you know, repeatedly stab them uh, and prolong the death as much as possible. But, you know, this was kind of a signature of humiliation, it seemed. Um, certainly. certainly probably on his part. Yeah. You talk about the activity at the cinemas that he owned at mm. any one of these cinemas that he owned what else did he do and partake in at those cinemas eerily enough yeah so um it's interesting as well because um you know going back to this idea of, of him fulfilling you know a, a kind of public service that, that was that was much appreciated one of the things um or one of the uh, with, with regards to the cinemas, one of the most popular screenings um, was the Saturday Morning Kids Club, which I think you, you have that in the States, right? Or you used to? Right. Yeah, okay. I was just checking it wasn't a kind of <laughs> British thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, so, you know, you've got the idea of this man. People, would, people were grateful because they would drop their children off on a Saturday. Um, they could go shopping or maybe have a couple of hours to themselves. And, you know, they were quite... Uh, adamant that you know, they were leaving him in safe hands. You know that, that this man in black was, you know, something of an avuncular figure. You know, he was there to, to look after the kids. Um, yeah, well. 
and yeah, well, exactly. Um, you know, but there, there were reports later that you know, basically, these cinemas, you know, they they were successful for a while, and then you know, they started to not be. Um, you know, people would go to the to the multiplexes in you know the nearby cities, or you know, this was the era of video, so they stay at home and watch entertainment that way. Um, so, you know, there's there's several kind of eyewitnesses accounts of you know go, attending these these uh, these cinemas, or particularly on a Saturday with the kids' club, and you know, it being virtually empty. Uh, you know, in one particular instance, someone remembers that they had to go all the way down from the balcony um, to the toilets uh, down below. And, you know, he was waiting there just staring at them, um, you know, which again, uh, you know, feeds into this idea of, you know, someone who, you know, who likes to gain control by intimidation and, and, you know, by coming out of the shadows, you know, so this, this will kind of fit his, his MO, if you like. When he was finally apprehended, you write, uh, and just taken in for questioning, he initially denied any involvement. But they came. To, they came to. He came to police attention because of a tip off from one of his former victims, who had yeah. recounted being taken back to his home and viciously assaulted. Now mm. there was a search because of that. There was a, led to a, a search warrant. As a result of the search, what did they find? And as a, as a result of what they found, what did Peter Moore do? Yeah, so um, so like you say, um, you know, someone did, one of the victims of, you know, his excessive um, sadism during one of the um, S&M sessions, um, he did actually go to authorities and, uh, you know, he remembered where this building was, which was Darlington House in Kimnall Bay, you know, so you know, this is quite a small place and a big house, so, you know, he'd remember it. Uh, you know, so once police were aware of this location um you know a kind of routine search of the building yielded um basically trinkets and mementos uh, of his murders uh, particularly those of, of henry roberts uh he it's it's stolen a nazi flag uh, off of him and a video right. recorder and there were very you know various other sort of bits and pieces trinkets that uh you know that, that we you know we hear that this is what uh uh, serial killers do, serial murderers do, in order to maybe kind of relive their crimes or, you know, get some satisfaction out of the trophies. Uh, but the other thing was, um, which was which people thought strange is that he always hired a van. Okay, so he, he would constantly hire a van for business, and he'd constantly be clearing it out. Um, and this was a van, that, that a white um, sort of transit van that had been spotted um, by eyewitnesses uh, at each of the crimes or several of the murder victims, but particularly parked out of Henry Roberts' house. Okay, so this is when police started joining the dots, um, you know, that these weren't random murders. This is, you know, the, possibly the work of a of a serial killer, you know, which was quite unusual, you know, for that, for that area of the country. Um, so, you know, when he was, like you say, initially denied any involvement, but um, I think when it became clear that, you know, this was more than just circumstantial evidence, um, he tried a, a kind of another very interesting alibi uh, in which he claimed that, the, that he didn't commit the murders uh, or the other crimes. You know, they were done by someone he called Jason, who, who was this imaginary uh, homosexual lover of his, um, in which, he, you know, he got the idea of, uh, of Jason Voorhees from, from Friday the 13th. 
You know, so again, there's right. this uh, sort of sinister cinematic connection uh, between the crimes. Um, so, you know, I think once he was past the point of denial, um, you know, this was an opportunity for him, again, to, to get attention, to fulfill the kind of narcissistic desires that he clearly had. Um, so, you know, during the crime, sorry, during the trial, uh, you know, like a year later almost, um, you know, he took this opportunity to sort of mug in front of the camera as much as possible. He'd, uh, he'd stand there with his arms aloft, you know, as if he was, um, you know, attending the Oscars or something like that. You know, much to the adding insult to injury of, of, of you know, the victims of the family who attended these trials. You know, but this was this was him really. You know, he he uh, he craved that limelight. Um, and again, you know, you know, once it was clear he couldn't conceal these things, it, it was like, well, okay, I, I can I can still uh, benefit from this. Okay, and you know, and to this day, he um, you know he's very active in prison. Um, you know, writing business plans or trying to sue former business uh, associates or neighbours, which, you know, a couple of times he has done successfully. Um, but he was given um, life without parole um, or probation, as it is, um, which is something that's usually to the discretion of the Home Secretary. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll hear people like uh, Ian Brady or, or Fred West, you know, or sort of Rosemary West, uh, you know, they they're... they're they're expected to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Um, you know, and he's tried to, uh, you know, tried to get out of this a few times, you know, by going to the Euro European Court of Human Rights. Um, but ultimately, they've upheld, uh, you know, the, the, the judgment sure. of the British judiciary. Okay, so, mm -hmm. you know, he, he's still not uh, done with trying to get out, but uh, it's probably unlikely they're going to rule in his favour. Yeah, you write that he would dress in black for court, black shirts, pants, and ties. He reveled in the attention yeah. and acted like a film star throughout. He would glare straight into the cameras with a grim smile on his lips. And yeah. he corresponded with the local press, as you write, uh, mm. discussing not only business plans, but also you write that a sinister part of this guy's um, existence was that he even sent a letter to Edward Carthy, um, the fourth victim that police hadn't even uncovered, and in a, in a sadistic way, he sent a letter to Carthy's niece proclaiming his innocence. She was 14, and you write, mm. he wrote, Dear Katie, in his correspondence. Yeah, so. uh, yeah. you know, sort of, uh, you know, apart from you know how kind of sinister that that whole setup is in any way. Um, you know, to, to to reach out to a young niece and 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 be over familiar, as if those two had ever met. Um, again, I think you know this was a kind of um, his way of you know a kind of reverberation of the crimes. You know, he couldn't he couldn't commit these crimes anymore, um, so he'd try and um, you know gain mastery over people in another way. Um, you know, by um, by trying to manipulate victims uh, or the families of victims, you know, which you know, obviously just adds further insult to injury, you know. But, you know, this obviously didn't register in him that this was an unusual or, 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 or you know, unpleasant thing to do, you know. So it was, it was basically, uh, you know, decided 
by the judge at his trial that you know he'd shown no remorse um, for any of his crimes. In fact, um, no. and yeah, sort of dressing in this uniform every day and looking in the camera, you know, was, was another extension of that, really. Um, you know, to the point where he, you know he was asked why he he committed these crimes, and you know his only answer was, well, it was for fun. I killed for fun. But you know, you, you can imagine, uh, you know, being a victim of the family sitting in the dock listening to that. Um, it, you know, yeah. it's it's it, 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 it's hard to to kind of imagine that. I think. Absolutely, yeah. It, it's it's also you write that he forged a friendship with none other than notorious serial killer. And again, one of the stories pertains to him, Doctor Harold Shipman, while he's in prison. So mm. just. Just the best of friends with everything in common. Yeah. Guys. yeah. I mean, the, the details of that are a little bit sketchy. Uh, I'm not really sure, you know, to, to what extent they were friendly or whether, you know, they they saw each other in prison. I mean, particularly here, the tabloid press, and I'm sure it's the same there as well. Uh, you know, sure. they'll, they'll snap someone from long range and they'll tell, you know, Myra Hindley and uh, and Rosemary West, best of friends, you know, which, which I think there was more evidence for those two doing it. But you know, this this, this is perhaps a, a, a way of trying to sort of fabricate, you know, something maybe more than it was. Um, so we, we can't really be sure about that. But uh, you know, it, it could have happened. They were probably in the, certainly in the same uh, in prison area. You know, they're both sort of from the north, north of England and, and north of Wales. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, this, this is uh, a fantastic and an incredible story. This uh, man in black and the silver screen. I want to thank you very much for for calling um, from abroad to the show True Murder here. Thank you very much, uh, Mark Friars, for the man in black and the silver screen and calling into the program. Uh, appreciate it very much. You're part of the the best new true crime stories, serial killers from Mitzi Serrato. And she joined us earlier, and Mark Friars has just joined us now. Thank you very much. You have a great evening, and you have a great holidays and a great Christmas. I want to thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today on True Murder. Thank you. Thank you. Good night.